0: I think the whole proposals, to be honest with you, are somewhat problematical. The purpose behind the proposed changes is to make data protection law simpler in the UK. But for many multinational corporations, it'll have the opposite effect.
1: In this episode of Life with GDPR, Tom Fox and Jonathan Armstrong take up changes to the UK data protection regime, which have been recently published and had a first reading in front of Parliament. We go through some of the changes, view why they are so problematic, and consider whether the new Prime Minister may change the law before it goes to the next reading. I know you'll find this episode very useful. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be back with Life with GDPR.
0: Hello, everyone. Tom Fox and Jonathan
1: Armstrong from Quartering Compliance back for another episode of Life with GDPR. Jonathan, since Brexit, we have anxiously awaited, indeed with bated breath, for the U.K., data protection regime to be published. Now we have changes to the UK data protection regime. And as we sit across the pond, what have you seen in here that you would wish to raise to data protection, data privacy, compliance professionals, or the greater business executive
0: who might be listening to this podcast? Yeah, thanks, Tom. I think the whole proposals, to be honest with you, are somewhat problematical. The The purpose behind the proposed changes is to make data protection law simpler in the UK. But for many multinational corporations, it'll have the opposite effect. Many people will remember the pre-GDPR regime where they had to sense check any proposed rollout of an HR application or a new privacy policy or a new marketing campaign in a number of different jurisdictions across Europe. And then when GDPR came in, that was simplified to some extent because the law had a similar effect across the whole of the EU with similar definitions, etc., etc. And unfortunately, the UK proposed regime is going to change that because whilst relaxing requirements in the UK... For some things, I think it will create uncertainty and an extra regime for people to have to check. It's fair to say that this is part of, as you said, the UK's response to Brexit. And there's still some lack of certainty about the proposals. And part of that is because, as we speak today, the removal vans are outside number 10. They're packing Boris Johnson's goods into two vans and shipping him out. Of course, there's not that much destruction to him as he's managed to fit in a second holiday in a couple of weeks in Greece, where he's unfortunately unavailable to help with the cost of living crisis in the UK from his sun lounger. But So there's no certainty in some respects that these changes will come in. That will depend on the new incoming Prime Minister. But given the background of both of the candidates, I think we're likely to see these proposals be polished up and become legislation, unless, of course, there's regime change. So there's a number of things that are being tinkered with. Uh, first of all, the definition of personal data. That's sort of unhelpful, as I say, because there's consistency currently under GDPR. There's some changes to things like legitimate interests. There's some changes to automated decision-making. There's some changes to the need to have a data protection. There's the abolishment of the need to have a data protection representative, which will be perhaps be welcomed, but will put the UK out of step with with the EU. And there are also some things that will still exist, but will be reframed. For example, data protection impact assessments will be called assessments of high-risk processing. That's unhelpful because it seems that more or less the process is the same. And why it's slightly odd is that the... Data Protection Impact Assessment System, formerly called the Privacy Impact Assessment System, was invented by the UK pre-GDPR. So on the basis of a post-GDPR regime change, if you like, we're changing legislation that existed before GDPR. So that doesn't seem to have a great deal of logic. One thing that people on the podcast might be interested in though is a change to the subject access request regime and this might be something that will reduce the burden of compliance we currently have a regime where it's hard to resist subject access requests and people make them for the most petty reasons i've had bad service at a shop i'll make a subject access request I didn't like the heat of the chili on my curry. I'll make a subject access request. And you didn't you don't have to give reason for that. You can resist subject access requests if they're manifestly unfounded or excessive. And the proposal is to change that to vexatious or excessive. And what those promoting change say is is that effectively that will mean that subject access requests can more commonly be refused. I'm not greatly convinced of that because the burden of proof will still be on the data controller, on the business, to show that a request is vexatious or excessive. That's often hard to prove because you can't ask the applicant their motive. You can only assume it and then they can ask the regulator or the court to review that, and you would have to prove that there was basis for your belief that the request was vexatious. And in some cases, you'll be able to do that, and in others, not so much. There are all sorts of other changes as well. There's some tinkering with cookies, which we just discussed in our last podcast. There's some changes slightly to data transfers. There's a sort of proposal at the same time that there might be some sort of regime for the regulator to intervene in complaints between individuals and corporations. But in some respects, we're playing with the periphery of GDPR rather than getting to some of the things that cause organizations the most pain. Breach reporting requirements would be one, for example, there'll still be an obligation to report data breaches within 72 hours despite the fact that some in the UK thought that 72 hour time limit was too short when GDPR initially came in
1: so let me uh, let me focus on the word vexatious jonathan in yeah. another life i actually had to litigate the meaning of that word and it's right. an incredibly high standard to have to meet far beyond bad faith. yeah. I, and it, when I did it, I, I really had no appreciation of how far beyond bad faith it is. And I note here that the change was not to, quote, in bad faith, end quote. It was to vexatious, which um. can either mean really bad if you're an evangelical 666 bad or yeah. with really no basis in fact to be able to use the information that you obtain in In the situation I had, it it was a discovery dispute, somewhat similar. But that's an incredibly high standard. And even with the factors they've listed, it seems to me there's not going to be much relief. And there, there can indeed be as much litigation over vexatiousness of a potential request as the time and money it would take to respond to the request.
0: I think that's probably right. I think that there may be extreme cases where the courts will have some sympathy, but I think they are going to be relatively few and far between. The, uh, As you said, the word excessive continues. And that's where a lot of requests, are not a lot, some requests are resisted at the moment on the basis of excessiveness. So that might be because somebody makes a subject access request every month free. But you're right that vexatious, I think, is a higher bar. In the UK, we have a process where you can apply to have somebody framed as a vexatious litigant so they can't bring proceedings again. I don't know the statistics. I would be surprised if there were more than a dozen people a year in the UK who were marked as vexatious litigants. I looked at the list some time ago and it was it was humanly possible to read the entire list of those who'd made a vexatious against whom a vexatious litigant order had been made since time began. So I don't suspect that this is something that data controllers will be able to use a lot. And I agree with you, this is going to be a high bar. And in some respects, even claiming that somebody is a vexatious litigant, a vexatious requester, is not without its difficulties. You have an obligation under GDPR to treat people fairly. So labelling somebody as vexatious when you don't have evidence to prove that they're vexatious could actually be a breach of GDPR itself. So it it is a sort of concession, if you like, which I think is going to be Rarely upheld by the courts unless organizations have really done their homework. Jonathan, let me go to
1: one of the other changes, and that's in what you termed a reframing of data protection impact assessments or DPAIAs. And I raise this because we have talked about this topic many times early on when we started this podcast. We tried to articulate our view that this was a foundational component of any data protection compliance program, as in any compliance program, you have to assess your own obligations and where you may fall in meeting those obligations and then put a plan together to get you to the desired either finish or starting line. Is it, in your view, have they changed either the spirit or the nature of that really foundation to look at your program, whether we call it a risk assessment, whether we call it a data impact
0: or data protection impact
1: assessment, or we call it a high-impact
0: assessment. I'm not sure if it's not just a rebranding. We had some difficulties with our girls when they were little. They wouldn't eat mushroom soup. They didn't like mushrooms. And so... We used to serve that up as woodland soup, which they loved. It was the same soup <laughs> in the same bowl <laughs> with the same ingredients. And I can't help but thinking that's what we've got here. I think we've got – we're turning data protection impact assessments, as I say, a concept that the UK invented, into assessments of high-risk processing. I think it's just a change from mushroom soup to woodland soup, I think, and – um And it looks to me as if the mechanism is similar and you're exactly right. And I think the assessments of high-risk processing is also, in some respects, an unhelpful name. You should assess any form of processing to determine if it's high-risk or not. How do you know whether you need to do an assessment? You're only assessing high-risk processing, but how do you know that? So you're still going to have to do that whole DPIA logic, I think, to work out the impact, work out the measures that you can put in place to reduce that impact, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm afraid I'm in the camp that it's mushroom versus woodland rather than any specific change that's going to help businesses.
1: Jonathan, you started off this podcast with a few views that these changes may have confused things more than they have enlightened us all. But for the U.S., U.K., French, or you name the country, company that does business in a multitude of jurisdictions, including the United Kingdom, including the EU, including Brazil, including the United States, isn't the bottom line we still need to fulfill the GDPR obligations because if we meet GDPR, that's still the gold standard?
0: I think that's right. I think that is right. And even if you've got a concession, and the concession only applies in the U.K., but you're doing business in another 18 EU countries, how does that concession help you in the main? Let's look at subject access requests. You're working, are you going to work on manifestly unfounded or excessive in 17 countries and vexatious or excessive in one? Or are you going to stick with your GDPR policy that says manifestly unfounded or excessive, which isn't perfect, But at least people have had three or four years of understanding what that means. So I'm not sure it helps at all. There might be a small amount of help to a business that's only in the UK, only ever deals with people in the UK. But those businesses in this day and age are few and far between. Anybody that has an internet site because of the discussions we've had before about cookies is likely to be subject to the GDPR regime as well as the new UK regime. So I think there's a very small number of people that will gain benefit from these changes. And some people will gain quite a lot of extra work, even if it's just as simple as labeling your DPIA DPIA slash assessment of high risk processing, that's still undesirable when the intent of the legislation is to reduce form filling and bureaucracy.
1: You spoke a few words about the political process, noting the departure of the former beloved Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, now off to sunny retirement with his new family. Are there constituents, or I guess the question would be, who would be the constituents who would lobby Parliament for changes in this law, if any?
0: I think there are some in the Conservative Party race who, or probably both of the candidates, would regard this as something that they would want to promote. Rishi Sunak was a Brexiteer, so I think will want to be showing his Brexit tattoos, if you like, to the audience, and Liz Truss opposed Brexit and will want to be seen to be cutting down red tape and to be converted to the cause of Brexit, and so it will be important to her as well. We could get somebody in the relevant government department who is more sensible than the current incumbent. That might be because the current incumbent is promoted or it might be because there's a recognition of the qualities that she does or does not possess and she's allowed to slip back to the back benches. So that could be something where there's a break on this. It could, of course, be something that isn't allocated that much parliamentary time for debate and so slow wheels through Parliament rather than going through Parliament quickly. But at the moment, there are too many uncertainties to be able to gauge how much of a priority this will be for the new regime. But the process has already started. The first reading of the bill was on the 18th of July. This takes place without any debate. Parliament are going to consider the bill at the second reading stage. There's no date out for that. Of course, Parliament's in recess at the moment. So there's no date for it emerging out of the sausage machine at the other end, but the process has changed. The key thing will be how the new administration deals with any proposed amendments to the legislation, and I think that will be interesting. It could end up with a much wider range of obligations than GDPR, particularly if those who are very vociferous about online harm get involved, particularly those if those who believe that GDPR itself is a, a burden on businesses, and particularly if those people who get involved who misunderstand the nature of data protection law and have, as a result, some ignorant but perhaps honestly Held view as to what the legislation entails. Well, I would certainly be shocked if any politicians met that definition, either in the United Kingdom or the United States. <laughs>
1: Nothing, it also strikes me as if, as with our last episode of this podcast, that we will be revisiting this, perhaps during the political process, and perhaps if and when it becomes law. So I look forward to
0: continuing that conversation. Yeah, me too. Thank you.
1: This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. We're going to link to the quarterly compliance client alert on this topic, so I hope you will check that out. The uh, link will be in the show notes. I'd like to tell you about two recent limited edition podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. The first one celebrated 100th anniversary of the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses. It's entitled "Ulysses at 100." lessons for the 21st century compliance professional. The second is never the same. Why business has changed forever after the Russian invasion of Ukraine in five key areas, supply chain, sanctions, and a corruption as a national security issue, cybersecurity, and ESG. You can check out both of these podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. The Ulysses series is under the podcast series, greetings, and felicitations. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope you'll join Jonathan and I again where we take up another issue around GDPR.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.